Psalm 51. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden parts thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem, then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. Amen. As you're familiar, from Second Samuel chapter 11 and 12, and as the beginning, the preface to this psalm made clear, God broke David by allowing him to fall into very grievous sins, adultery, and murder, and scandal. And Psalm 51 is, as you know, his psalm of repentance, of turning from that sin back to God. It's clear from this psalm, God did not waste this terrible sin in David's life, but he used it for his good. And it should be clear from this psalm as well, he didn't waste it for your life either. God broke David's heart, in part so that he might also break your heart. And that's the theme of this text, Psalm 51, verse 17. We hear in this text of a sacrifice that is sufficient, the sufficient sacrifice. Consider with me the sacrifice first itself. It is, to put it in one word, brokenness brokenness, contrition, to use a synonym. It means 
the entire destruction of the whole man. I'm not speaking, I don't think, too strongly. If you look at Psalm 38, this contrition is put in very stark terms. When David cries out, Lord, rebuke me not in thy wrath, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure, for thine arrows stick fast in me, and thy hand presseth me sore. There is no soundness in my flesh because of thine anger, neither is there any rest in my bones because of my sin. He goes on to say, my wounds stink and are corrupt. My loins are, loins are filled with a loathsome disease. There's no soundness in my flesh. I'm feeble and sore broken. I have roared by reason of the disquietness of my heart. It's a destruction that starts from the inside and goes to the outside, both of soul and body, of the entire man. These words used here being broken or like that of a dry pot smashed to smithereens. Or contrite speaks of being ground down. It's a word that's used to describe what the Israelites would do with manna, would grind it up sometimes in order to cook it. And so it is with the heart, the spirit that is broken. What is the spirit or heart broken and contrite about? It's about sin. Sin is the reason for brokenness here. And you can see that throughout the psalm, but especially in the first five verses. David is asking for mercy to blot out transgressions, to be washed from iniquity, cleansed from sin. He acknowledges his transgressions. His sin is before him. He says, I've sinned against you. I've done evil. I've been shapen in iniquity. Sin is the reason David has a broken heart. And that in this verse is the sacrifice that he is making to God. But the thing we learn about this sacrifice in this verse is that it is sufficient. It's a sufficient sacrifice. It's sufficient first for the one that's doing the sacrificing. Notice how our translation is literal, speaking not of sacrifice, but of sacrifices, plural. It's exactly what the Hebrew says. They are a plural of sacrifices, but that plural sacrifice is one thing, the broken singular spirit. That is to say that all the sacrifice that is required is summed up in this one thing. All of the sacrifices of God, the sacrifices we must make, are summed up in this one if you contrast with verse 16, it says, Thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. It's clear that this is not the same as the animal sacrifices that were made in the Old Testament. Many of those would be brought. There were many plural sacrifices. All of them are summarized in this one, which must be given first, and through those animal sacrifices if they were in that time to be acceptable to God. When a believer brought an animal to be slain, God is saying that he must first and ultimately be bringing himself to be slain. Psalm 40, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, says in sacrifice and offering, thou hast not, desired, thou hast not delighted, but a body 
thou hast prepared for me. And so the Apostle Paul says of believers, what's the one sacrifice that we ought to make? What is our reasonable service? It's to lay our very bodies on God's altar as a holy and acceptable sacrifice in his sight. It's the sum of all the sacrifices you are to make to God. It's sufficient for you, but it's sufficient also for God, for the one who receives these sacrifices. They are, it says, the sacrifices of God. They take care of all that God desires. If God receives this one sacrifice, it counts as all his sacrifices. And he has in them a sufficient pleasure. Look how it's stated emphatically in the last part of the text. A broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. This emphatic negative, it will not displease you, God, is a strong way to say it certainly will please you. God is happy with this sacrifice. If these sacrifices, this one of the broken and contrite heart is made, then God is pleased. And he's pleased with it more than any other. We saw that from verse 16. We can see it from the last chapter of Isaiah, chapter 66, when in the first two verses he makes a profound contrast. Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me, and where is the place of my rest? Great things, heaven, the earth, the temple. For all those things hath mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look. What is God looking for more than all of heaven and earth, even the temple? Even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembling at my word. That is what gives God true pleasure. To sum up what this text is telling us, a heart broken over sin is the beginning and the sum of true Christian piety. A heart broken over sin is the beginning and the sum of true Christian piety. Now I want to show you that teaching and unpack it a little bit from the rest of the Bible. And then we'll conclude with applications for our own heart and spirit. First, is that this blessing of a broken heart is the beginning of piety. It actually, in a certain sense, precedes faith. A broken heart is God's normal preparation for conversion, for the beginning of the Christian life. In Acts 16, you remember the Philippian jailer. He is in great trouble because the prisoners, it seems, are going to go free. And he is very stirred up in his heart. His heart, in some outward sense, is broken, so broken that he thinks to kill himself with his own sword. The apostles stopped him. That would not be a believing response to his proper fear. And they say that he asked them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they say, Then believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. 
And so he is, and they are. The Savior speaks of this in Luke chapter 5, when he says, it is not the whole that need a physician. If you're healthy, you don't go to the doctor. It's the sick that need a doctor. And he explains, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. There is a brokenness that we must feel if we are to come to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. It is preparatory for faith. A broken heart is necessary for that grace that always attends true faith, the grace of repentance. True repentance, as the Shorter Catechism says, means turning with a hatred of our sins from them unto God. And this hatred of sin is exactly part of the broken heart that God speaks of. Remember Ezekiel chapter 36. It speaks of God's work of regeneration and what comes from it, the new life as a heart surgery. God taking out a heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh. That's a profound way to speak of God's work in breaking the heart so that then we would turn from all those sins. And that's how the text in Ezekiel 36 continues. The new heart then repents. But it also leads to justification, a broken heart does. And as you know, justification is the first blessing that a Christian receives through his union by faith in Jesus Christ. This forgiveness of sins and the reception of a record not our own, so that in God's court of law, it's as if we had never sinned because we're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. That comes to those who are broken in their hearts. Christ put it in a memorable way in Luke 18. Do you remember the two men praying in the temple? The one, the publican, and the other, the Pharisee. The Pharisee, thank God that he wasn't like other men. The publican abhorred himself, could barely lift his eyes to heaven, and he said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Christ said, that second man went down to his house, justified. The broken heart becomes, by God's grace, the heart of a man whose sins are all forgiven. So it's the beginning of piety. The Christian faith, we can say, starts with a broken heart. But it continues and ends that way as well, at least in this life. It is the sum of Christian piety. The broken heart is part and parcel of your sanctification, of your growth in grace and holiness. There's a part of sanctification that we call mortification. And that means the putting to death of sin, the taking of the spiritual sword and putting it into your own heart. That requires a broken heart. It requires, as Paul says in Galatians 5, that we crucify the flesh with all its evil lusts. It's basic. You can't do that duty without a broken heart. You also can't do the duty of cross-bearing without a broken heart. Christ said that if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But he who, saves his, he, he who loses his life for my sake will find it. And those 
ways of speaking are really telling us the same thing as our text. To bear the cross, to deny yourself, to lose your life. That's what it means to have a broken heart. And if you think of this age, it's impossible to live as a true Christian without a broken heart. Because think of all the creation around us. It is groaning under the weight of sin. You only have to watch the news for a few minutes nowadays to see that that is true. This world is crying out under the weight of sin. It is broken. If we're not, we're not paying attention. Especially when you realize it's not just the creation around us. It's the creation within us and in us that is groaning, or at least ought to be. Because the holiest Christian of all in this age continues to cry out with the Apostle Paul, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And that is a broken-hearted cry. No Christian is exempt from that today. It's impossible not only not to not only to begin the Christian life, but to continue it in this evil age without a broken heart. I want to address a few objections that come here. Perhaps they're in your mind or you've heard them. One is that this duty of having a broken heart doesn't fit with Christian joy. Didn't the Apostle Paul himself say that we're to rejoice in the Lord always? And again, I say rejoice. He surely did. But just as much as there's a duty of joy, so for a Christian there is a duty of mourning. In fact, Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes 7, it's better to have your heart in the house of mourning. It's better to be at a funeral than at a party because at the funeral you learn wisdom. And do you remember how the wicked mocked John the Baptist, that holy man, because of his holy grief? Christ said in Matthew 11 that the children or the people of his day were like children in the marketplace. They're saying, we played the dirge or we played the flute and you didn't dance. Because when John came and they saw his austere outside and his strong preaching against sin, that he must have been a killjoy and they made fun of him. There is a need for a Christian to be sad about things that are sad. Just as much as there's a duty to be joyful about things that are joyful. And as long as in this life there are things that are sad and that are joyful, we have a duty to be both. Now because you and I are finite creatures, we usually only are one or the other at one time or another. And so Ecclesiastes says there's a time to weep and there's a time to laugh. And the key of Christian wisdom is knowing when that time is. The same David, who was broken to the dust about his sins in 2 Samuel 12, was rejoicing before the world with all his might in 2 Samuel 6. As the ark came into the city, he knew, and we must also. We want as much as possible to be like God, who in his perfect simplicity, how he, all his attributes are indivisible, he is always 
angry at sin, and always delighting in goodness without any conflict. And as best we can as finite creatures, we ought to be like our God. So that shouldn't be a hindrance to this duty. The second objection, not just Christian joy, is Christian righteousness. David, for example, this same David in Psalm 18, he celebrates that God heard his prayers and saved him because of his own righteousness. Because of his hands, they're clean and he hadn't done evil in God's sight. Every true Christian should be able to say the same. Because a true believer is a holy believer. And you ought to be living a life that pleases God. So you might say, if I am, why do I always have to go mourning because of my sin? Well, you can make the same answer as before. Because though you're holy, you do continue <coughs> to sin. It is true that Christians are righteous. True Christians are. That they are, in the sense the Bible means it, perfect. They have a perfect heart. They have perfect desires in the sense that their whole life is aiming in the same direction. You're either walking to heaven or you're walking to hell. It's one way or the other. But we're not perfect in the degree of our sanctification. We're not perfect in all the details of our life. And as far as that's true, my friends, there's much reason to continue broken, even as holy Christians rejoicing in God's work in us, that we're not who we once were. The third, perhaps the greatest objection against this duty of a broken heart is that of Christ-centeredness. It's very popular to speak of being Christ-centered, and all Christians should want to be so in the right way. People say that if you're going around with a broken heart or seeking to develop a broken heart, that you run the risk of navel-gazing, they call it, looking in yourself and not looking at Christ. But the Bible actually joins these two things together, looking in the self and looking to Christ. Paul says, for me to live is Christ, but that same Paul calls every believer to examine himself and to be very zealous in developing his own inner life. And to put it very simply, seeking a broken heart exalts Christ because it obeys Christ. And to obey the Lord Jesus is to lift him up in all things. But think especially of this duty of having before God a broken heart and how it actually brings great glory to the Savior. Because in recognizing and confessing your own brokenness, in being broken over your own sins, you are, so to speak, getting yourself out of the way so that the work of Christ can shine in you. In fact, in taking these words of David on our lips and living them before God, we are doing the duty that John, John the Baptist, calls us to in seeking that I would decrease and that Christ would increase. And may it be so, no conflict between the glory of Christ and the seeking of a broken heart before him. So given this teaching, and I hope some help in 
addressing objections, I bring to you this morning four applications from this text. And the first that presents us most urgently is the test. You must test your heart to see whether it is indeed broken and contrite. You need to do this because your heart can be deceitful. And you need to do it because this is actually a matter of eternal life, death. Paul speaks in 2 Corinthians 7 of a certain brokenness, a certain grief about sin that actually doesn't save. He warns believers of it. In verse 10, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. And I want you to be very honest with your own heart. Because it is possible to have an outward show of brokenness, but not actually have the sacrifices of God. I'll give you examples from the Bible. There's a brokenness, on the one hand, that's incomplete. The perfect example of this is Esau. Esau, in the Bible, was outwardly a broken man. When he, in his folly, gave up his own birthright, he wept about it. He was very sad. He sought the blessing, the author of Hebrews tells us, with tears. Not that he sought the heavenly blessing. He was, not, he was an earthly man. But he was so sad that he had lost his outward privileges that he cried. But as you know, Esau did not have a broken heart. It was only an outward brokenness and not a brokenness about sin. You can see also a brokenness that is shown to be false because of backsliding. That's the brokenness of King Saul. Do you remember how many times he was caught and his sins were shown that he was pursuing God's servant David to death? And he offered a show of repentance and was sorry and asked David forgiveness. But he went right back to his sin, showing that the brokenness was not true. There's also a false brokenness that shows its falsity by despair. That's the brokenness of Judas. Perhaps the greatest outward brokenness a man has ever shown. He knew that he betrayed his best friend and his Lord. And he took those 30 pieces of silver and with hatred threw them back into the temple. And then he went and hanged himself. The apostles tell us that he went to his own place. Judas was not saved. He did not have a truly broken heart, though outwardly it seemed so. He was a despairing man. And so I want you, by contrast, to see then what the marks of true brokenness, that your heart might be tested. True brokenness is not incomplete. It's thorough. We read it from David in Psalm 51, how he takes his sin all the way back from the particular occasion to the root when he says in verse 5, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He takes actual sin and takes it back to the root of original sin, and he repents of all of it, hating the very beginning. And he says in verse 4 what his sin is all about. It's not about Bathsheba or Uriah or even Israel or his own soul. 
He says against thee, thee only, have I sinned. Sin is ultimately the breaking of God's law. And that is what David laments. There's a thorough brokenness. Notice also how David's brokenness is accompanied by obedience. For example, verse 13. Then, once you restore me by your grace, Lord, I will teach transgressors thy ways. I'm going to go back and be a good example to others. And as you give me grace, use even my lips to turn sinners unto thee. There's a full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. A broken heart leads to that. And unlike Judas, the true broken heart is always a hoping heart. It's very far from despair, though there can be some outward resemblance to despair. The true broken heart is sure that God will see and be and accept this pleasing sacrifice. So in Psalm 32, which we sing, you sang already today, when David in verse 5 says, I acknowledge my sin unto thee, or sorry, for verse 4, for day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned to the drought of summer. But then verse 5, I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said I will confess my tra transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. A truly broken heart, yes, tastes the awful bitterness of sin and what it's done to my relationship with my own God. But it never falls into despair but clings through Jesus Christ in hope. Do you have such true brokenness in your heart? If you do, the second application is this, that you ought to take great comfort, having tested your heart to now comfort your heart, because as we read in 2 Corinthians 7, a true godly sorrow leads to true salvation without repentance. When you repent in this true way, you won't repent of your salvation. It leads to justification, as we heard from Luke 18, that if you, like that publican, cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, you too will go home to your house justified. David was. He cried out to Nathan in 2 Samuel 12 for forgiveness. And the prophet Nathan, speaking on God's behalf, said that God has forgiven you your sins. It will bring benefits to you in your sanctification. Through this brokenness, you'll grow in grace. Paul speaks of what this holy anger against sin brings. Again, back to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He says in verse 11, Behold, that ye sorrowed after a godly sort. Behold, what carefulness it wrought in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation. Yea, what fear. Yea, what vehement desire. Yea, what zeal. Yea, what revenge. It will help you and does help you in the fight against sin. And ultimately, this blessing that is a proof to you of your justification, of your sanctification, should be a proof to you also of eternal life. That as Psalm 30 says, though weeping tarry for the night, joy comes in the morning. And you'll be able to say, as you go along, even in this dark world, especially on the last day, Lord, you've turned my morning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth. 
and clothe me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. Every broken heart does and will rejoice in that way forever. So take comfort, Christian. But third, if you've tested your heart and seen that your brokenness is false, then I bring you a solemn warning. Because worldly sorrow leads to guilt, to ungodliness, and to death. It is really pride, no matter what a sad face it puts on, and pride always brings a fall. I want you to hear the warning from Ezekiel chapter 9 in this regard. This broken heart is so essential to the Christian faith that God marks those with it but promises to destroy all the others. So in Ezekiel 9, verses 4 through 7, the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. And to the others, he said in mine hearing, Go ye after him through the city and smite. Let not your eyes spare Neither have ye pity, slay utterly, old and young, both maids and little children and women, but come not near any man upon whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. God today is searching your heart. Has he found true brokenness, true sadness over the saddest thing of all, which is sin? If so, he puts his mark on your head, but if not, you will be destroyed. And that is far sadder than whatever pain you might experience through true brokenness of heart today. And so I warn you that your life would be, would, must be one of brokenness or else you will perish. But fourth and finally, to all of you, to all who hear this word, I call you to do the duty that's set plainly before us. To put it very simply, you must break your heart. That is the sacrifice that God desires. It's the sum of all his sacrifices. And I give you then four means by which you might do this. First is meditation. Thinking of the truths of God's word will lead you to true brokenness. Think of God and His holiness. It worked for Isaiah. Remember chapter 6? He saw the glory of the Lord and the angels crying, Holy, holy, holy. And he fell on his face and said, Woe is me, I am undone. If you with him can have a glimpse in your mind's eye of the holiness of God, the same will be true of you. If you can have a glimpse of sinfulness and how terrible and black and awful and disgusting your sins are, then you'll have this broken heart of David, that broken heart that led that woman to come to Jesus' feet and weep, to wash his very feet with her tears and with her hair. You meditate, as she did also, on Christ and his loveliness. That will break your heart because he is the great physician and it Thinking of him will stir up the knowledge of your own sickness and make you run to him. 
thinking of the righteous Savior. By contrast, think of your unrighteousness and how he supplies your need. When he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, it should be a reminder to you that you do labor and are heavy laden, but that if you come to him, you'll rest. So think on these things. Use not only meditation, but prayer. If this is an acceptable sacrifice to God, ask him for the grace to make it. And confess to him the sin of your heart. Confess your own brokenness. The great help to you is to read, to sing, and even to memorize this Psalm 51. And I can testify to you what enormous changes this psalm has wrought in my own life, teaching me to have a broken heart like David. A third means is a way to increase the fervor of your prayers and of your brokenness, and that is by fasting. Perhaps you practice this Christian discipline, but the body in this way is broken so that the soul might be more broken, that your heart might be broken, that you, in the words of the prophet Joel, may rend your hearts and not your garments. So use in appropriate times that means as well. But fourth and finally, the means which must be used in all these means, the means of faith. It's through belief in what God says that you will achieve this true brokenness. And if you do have this broken heart, then I call you to believe what this text says, that it's a sacrifice acceptable to God and that your godly grief will truly lead you to glory. God will not despise this sacrifice. Even if man does, and he often does, the world makes fun of Christians for their weeping, for their mourning, for their sadness. But it's a pleasure to your God. Believe that, and that will help you in this duty. But also, cast yourself by faith upon the Lord Jesus. This is a reminder to you today to forsake trust in yourself, as Job did, to abhor yourself and repent in dust and ashes, so that, as John said, you will decrease, and Christ in you and through you will increase. Christian, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is how to have a broken heart. And believe what he says, that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Amen.